dopamine swipe, dopamine, dopamine swipe. Follow us, likes, double tap. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the 817 Podcast. This week is going to be a mega episode. And I forgot to say this to you before we started. This will be our 100th episode. Holy potatoes. How'd you know that? Uh, Buzzsprout sent an email. Yeah. Yeah. Look at us. 100. Yeah. So that means 104 would be like two years of doing this. Yeah. Yeah. And so in honor of our 100th episode, it's going to be mega-sized because we have, one, we have an interview, and two, we're not going to be posting anything next week. So this is kind of your two-for-one special. You can split it in half if you'd like to and take it in bite-sized pieces or really bear down and take it all in one. But... We've got a few short stories, and then our big story will be an interview with Jessica Black, who is the co-founder of the Texas Neighborhood Coalition, which is an organization that works with cities across the and neighborhoods across the state of Texas to create regulation around short-term rentals. Um, and so we've got plenty to that we've talked about with that, and uh, some public hearings coming up so we wanted to have her on to provide a lot of her insight and expertise on what she's learned over the past few years of being part of the texas neighborhood coalition yeah because we have a lot of dates coming up and uh, around short-term rentals and what fort worth is going to do and so yeah like we're going to have a big episode this probably you know you say 100 years is definitely going to go past well, we won't hit 100 minutes, possibly, depending on, because you have her interviews, 40 minutes, and then we usually do a 40-minute show. So, well, we're going to get close. And so the reason why we're doing it together is because we just felt like because we're going to be out next Monday, we were going to split them up. But her data and like what's coming up, it's pretty timely to when you look at the dates that we all need to be aware about. Mm. So, you know, when we did the Michael Crane interview, we just split the two. Um, even though we recorded those on the same day, this go around, we're just going to make it one big episode. So let's get ready to rumble. First story is in the Fort Worth Report. It is about education written by Jacob Sanchez, who has done amazing work to uh, communicate education in the city. Fort Worth ISD plans to spend $1.2 million to compete against charter schools. Um, they will be partnering with Dallas-based Alpha Business Images to set up marketing campaign to draw students to the district. Uh, the vote among the, the, the trustees was seven to two. And uh, there's a quote here by David Science, who's the chief of innovation at Fort Worth ISD. He says, it's important to make sure our parents understand all their choices. This is not who's better than the other. It's the district saying, hey, if we're going to offer choice to our families, our parents need to have all the information they need to make an informed choice. Uh, They also dive in and talk about how charter schools has slowly chipped away on Fort Worth ISD enrollment. Check this out. In 2021-2020 school year, more than 13,600 students transferred into a charter school from the district, according to the Texas Education Agency data. An additional 2,289 students transferred to a traditional public school. But the growth rate on that change in charter schools is, is, is big. So when we put the story in, you can also see the graph of how this is really making a dent on ISD's enrollment. Jimmy's, what's your take? I think that... You know, I think both neither of us had like big issues with Kent Scribner, the 
superintendent. But I think that these are kind of the steps that people were hoping to see happen um, to try and combat the amount of people exiting Fort Worth ISD. And, you know, whether this actually does anything, who knows? But at least we're looking at the problem of decreased enrollment, saying, how can we, why, saying, why is it happening? Learning that maybe it has to do with people not having complete information around what the offerings are, what the difference between charter and public schools are, etc., and actually putting action behind it. So I, I really appreciate that the school board is taking a, a, a big step here. Yeah. My, my big takeaway to me is um, I, I, I just think public schools need to stop beating around the bush and accept that you're in a competition environment. You know, I think the quote saying, oh, this is not about competition. That's like the political public schools like public schools have this aura that they don't they're not influenced by capitalism or like capitalism doesn't impact them and like we can just be like this is a non-competition space but we have to wake up and say no this is a competition and if this keeps up you're losing yeah i think it's a reckoning similar to what like the post office versus the fedex UPS, fedex because you're comparing a capitalist business with a public service and they both have two very different goals like you could argue the same goal as educating kids but i would argue that the goal of any business is to make money yeah um so you have to actually have that reckoning of right we are in a competition even though maybe we shouldn't be and we have to figure out how to, within our realm of being a public service, figure out how to compete with a business. Yeah, and and that's, to me, the big kicker here. How can you be one of the fastest-growing cities, but your enrollment is going down? This, this is, yeah, this is, we have to see how do we think about school differently. It's not just about marketing schools and putting brochures in so that your brochure is next to the charter school brochure. Because mm-hmm. you know what that charter school brochure is going to be? less a better ratio because it's smaller it's going to be more personalized um so it's also thinking about how are we doing school differently because of the funds that public schools get to then create more modern forward schools because you're right no one wants a school ran by capitalism and you know the end goal and when it comes down to tough decisions around safety student support services and all these things they're going to have to minimize those things to retain profit or or earnings where that's why public education matters so much is that Mm -hmm. it's truly about the good of society and when you're going to have you know this is how we fund our workforce this is how we become productive members of society it's so much more bigger than uh, money it's it's about um, the future of our country and so yeah let's think bold let's have bold and uh, we'll see what they do with the money yeah Moving into the next story, the city of Fort Worth presented a plan to use $13 million in federal housing department funds to 
fund a variety of after-school programs, nutrition and transportation programs for older adults, workforce training, and housing services as part of its 2022-2023 HUD Annual Action Plan. If approved, the plan would allocate that money to 21 organizations across the city that would assist in things across the board that are really positive programs for us to be investing in. So this year's funding is a 1% increase from last year's total funds, but two out of the four grants funding the plan have seen a drop in available allocation compared with the previous year. So as always, services and organizations like this are concerned that they're going to have enough funds to meet the needs that we have, especially as we are starting to face more of a housing crisis in Fort Worth. The second public hearing for this will be 6 p.m. August 9th. Um, and also the plan program should begin October 1st. So it's really around the corner. Uh, what I also think is interesting is that 60% of the total funds is really focused in on housing and homeless services. Mm -hmm. uh, but I thought I didn't realize how comprehensive the HUD goals were. I mean, there's yeah. seven other pieces outside of just homeless services. You're talking preserving aging housing stock, improving accessibility of public and private spaces, poverty reduction, promoting affordable housing for renters. Uh, but this one I thought like children and youth training and mentorship, like it seems like something for the ISD should really be on top of. And then, so I thought that was interesting, especially for me in that space. I was like, that's interesting. Targeting neighborhood revitalization and homeless services. Mm -hmm. But 60% is going to housing and home, homeless services. Uh, so you see how they're prioritizing those goals of the eight. Yeah. So like EJ said, a second public hearing will be at 6 p.m. August 9th when the city council will then vote on it later that evening with the plans program hopefully beginning October 1st. And I'm interested to know if Candace Valenzuela is still the uh, U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development's administrator for the region. I know she was back in like May of 20, uh, 2022. So, I mean, I would assume so. But she is also the one who ran um, ah. against. Um, I forget who she ran against. Um, but so you also have a strong leader in place for this, which is exciting. Yeah. Want to move to the third story? Let's do it. The TCU School of Medicine will soon serve as the epicenter for a clinical trials research consortium in Fort Worth. Clinical trials are research studies that test how an in intervention like a specific drug or medical device affects people. The consortium, right now a partnership between the medical school and three area hospitals, will hopefully encourage pharmaceutical and biotech companies to open trials for people in the city. We've talked a lot on the podcast, maybe it really not recently, but over the course of 100 episodes about Fort Worth being a hub for medical and pharmaceutical innovation. And this feels like a continuation of that. Yeah, partners for the uh, consortium is TCU School of Medicine, Baylor Scott and White All Saints Medical Center, uh, Fort Worth, Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital, Fort Worth, and JPS Health Network. I think what's really big and, and, and exciting about this is it's... To, to me, when you look at the tech stars doing the public health accelerator, um, a lot of our 
ecosystem of entrepreneurship and innovation in the community is still ran out of the health science center. This to me just showcases uh, innovation and how we are leading in that kind of uh, health space. And there's a lot of great minority entrepreneurs, female led businesses in this space. Um, so this is exciting that we're thinking about this, which then on the same flip side helps the economic side of trying to get more people uh, involved in this. What's interesting today, though, is that most companies come to Alliance, mm. which is really far from where this is all happening, you know, from a regular basis. So I'm wondering, could Fort Worth maybe land a business that's finally in Fort Worth proper um, that aligns with this? Because the other big challenge is a lot of these studies and all this product is usually built to then get bought by already a large health company, which is why we have succeeded in Fort Worth and building companies, uh, building innovations like this, but we haven't built entrepreneurs who said, you know what, I'm going to see this until it goes public or until, and now we have a thousand people living in Fort Worth who lives for the city because it's a lot easier to just flip it and sell it to, I'm just saying Pfizer right now, but there's even mm. other people. Yeah. To me, it's an interesting pivot from TCU who is not really known for being a research institution as far as like TCU undergrad goes, but it seems like with the medical school and in being able to partner with Techstars and the investment in pharmaceutical innovation in Fort Worth, they're making that pivot and focusing more on trying to become a research institution. So I wonder if that could have trickle down effect to the university, to the undergrad eventually because of how they're investing in it here. Yeah, the school is also partnering with the University of Texas at Arlington to create two new dual degree opportunities, an MD, PhD in computer science, and an MD, PhD in biomedical engineering, um, which, I mean, that's awesome. I mean, really cool stuff mm -hmm. right there. And, and yeah, that's exciting. I think the kicker, too, I, you know, I just keep going back to this, like, Indian-Asian-American boom and just like how 72% of people in a com computer science degree is an immigrant uh, and a master's degree um, thinking about like, how do we, how do we get our public schools also involved in this um, kind of discussion? So kids can see this exposure, yeah. you know, yeah. maybe that's the marketing, man. Like how do you bridge this stuff and expose kids and can you create um, a moat or um an institutional partnership with Fort Worth ISD and TCU in this consortium to really build out like the STEM academies and, and, and all that stuff. Well, and that's part of what it says is it wants to build up physicians in the area. And uh, you would think if we can make that homegrown talent, if we can get to these kids in middle and high yeah. school and give them hands-on, more hands-on learning experiences, how much easier that is to keep them in Fort Worth than potentially having to attract people from outside to come in. Yeah, if Fort Worth, or any city for that matter, can find a way to get American-born students interested and accelerated through a medical computer science pipeline. Mm. Um, I mean, that's huge. I mean, there's two data points, I think, off, just off the bat that just came out this week. New York Times had an article about how 
um, immigrants are nearly twice as likely to be wealthy than um, uh, a kid who comes from an American household family. And uh, the other piece was around what percentage of people who get PhDs actually come from a family who has a PhD mm, or a graduate yeah, research. You yeah, see that one? I saw that one. I don't know if that was New York Times as well, but I'll, we'll, we'll find those and get those in the descriptions as well as those were great graphs. So, again, these are timely topics nationally. Fort Worth is stepping into the pace to the, doing that. But it sounds like both of these articles need both of these people quoted need to be having conversations from, you know, Mr. Flynn to David signs. Like this, this is a, hopefully a conversation happening. Yeah. I have a fourth bonus story. Come on now to throw in here. Says you got to leave in 20 minutes, but he said, Hey, got another story. (laughs) That is that with 27, $0.6 $0.6 million, Beto O'Rourke sets a new fundraising record in Texas politics. Incumbent Greg Abbott entered this year with a much larger war chest and still has the financial upper hand, but he was outraised by Beto by almost $3 million. And I think the even more significant number is that O'Rourke's haul came from over 511,000 contributions, whereas Abbott's campaign said it was nearly 113,000 contributions. So we're looking at four and a half times as many people are donating to Beto as they are to Abbott. Now, I don't know how different this is from Beto versus Cruz in 2018, but this is a significant amount of investment going into Beto's race when he is not in the national spotlight the way that he was in 2018. Um, I mean, there's been some flair here and there, but not to the level of celebrity that he had back then. This could maybe be bad news for Abbott. The most recent fundraising period saw at least two major events that energized Democrats, including the Uvalde shooting, as well as the Supreme Court overturning of Roe v. Wade. And O'Rourke has alluded to those events in a statement touting his fundraising. We're receiving support from people in every part of Texas who want to work together to ensure our state moves beyond Greg Abbott's extremism and finally leads in great jobs, world-class schools, the ability to see a doctor, keeping our kids safe, and protecting a woman's freedom to make her own decisions about her body. I think it's like if you look at Beto and what he's accomplished, he's really understanding and I think learning from the Ted Cruz days, it's not about the national news. It's about showing up in Texas. Mm -hmm. I mean, the guy is nonstop. I think I get tired at work and I'm like, dude, I can't. This guy will walk Opal Lee's walk and then show up in Galveston for a dinner in Juneteenth. And I mean, I'm talking 49 days, 70 something counties or cities or whatever. Like this guy is moving, getting people excited. Um, I would be curious. I don't know if you, if you already said it and I missed it, but what percentage of his donations are from outside of people in Texas. That would be um, something I'd be curious about. Yeah, it does not say, it says with Abbott's campaign that the campaign released that nearly 86% came from within Texas. O'Rourke's, it just says that almost 99% of which came in online, the average donation was $54. Um, But his quote around it is we're receiving support from people in every part of Texas who want to work together. So I I do imagine that O'Rourke is probably receiving a little bit more outside. I would of argue Texas. I would argue 40% half, but I don't know what, 
I'm guessing off of lack of knowing what it was with Cruz. Yeah. But I'm just thinking like the Democrat, you know, I think there was a lot of data around this when it came to when the Lindsey uh, Graham race, the guy who ran against that one in the state of yeah. South Carolina. I don't know, Georgia. Though, because I under I get what you're saying and potentially agree with you. But national Democrats right now are worried about Georgia. They're worried about Wisconsin. Pen- Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, potentially North Carolina, Pennsylvania. O- Ohio. Like, so I think that there's a lot of Senate seats that are taking the national attention the way that a Senate race took the national attention for Beto and uh, maybe aren't as focused on a gubernatorial race. Um, and I would say of the gubernatorial races, this one is probably second below Georgia um, and maybe even Wisconsin too. So this is definitely lower on the totem pole than it yeah, was Illinois back in 2018. Pumping, Illinois is pumping out money because their governor is like a billionaire, you know, and yeah. all that stuff. That one's crazy too. Um, yeah, really exciting stuff. And uh, ready for the big story? Yeah, let's let's go. So the big story is short-term rentals. Um, Fort Worth is going to present four ways to regulate um, VRBOs and Airbnb. uh, And they want to hear from the constituents, us Fort Worthians. This is a Star Telegram article by Harrison, a friend of the pod. And uh, really what you just need to know is that there's upcoming dates. Uh, City staff will present four options during public meetings slated for 6 p.m. July 26th and July 28th. the July 26th meeting will be in person at City Hall. The July 28th meeting will be virtual. And there will be public comment meeting August 2nd. And so this is also why we have Jessica Black on with us is because she's going to kind of give her experience some really investing time and in, in her knowledge as a lawyer around this conversation for the last four years and what she's seen at Arlington and other cities. But Jimmy, um, what do we have that the city has shared around those four points? So we have proposed registration fees for legal short-term rentals, uh, and uh, part of that would be an annual fee to cover city costs for platform end enforcement, HOT collection, which is a homeowner's tax, which cannot be used for administration or enforcement, um, but would have to go towards tourism, property owner registers slash consents, and that registration is non-transferable having to have a 24-7 local contact and liability insurance, an affidavit for safety protocols, one guest or group at a time, limited to three people per bedroom, max of nine people, on-site parking only with a parking plan required, no events or parties, no outdoor gatherings or music after 10 p.m., a requ- require a good neighbor guide, advertising for short-term rentals requires registration, registration would be placed on probation or revoked based on violations and the city would require advertising platforms like airbnb and verbo to only allow advertising for short-term rentals registered with the city so there's four zoning options that they're putting forth option one is same as now continue what we've been doing um not allowed in residential areas Option two would be to treat short treat owner-occupied short-term rentals as bed and breakfast homes. This would require a conditional use permit with a five-year time limit. 
It would not be allowed in single-family zoning, only allowed with a conditional use permit in two-family and multifamily zoning with 400-foot separation. It would treat investor-owned short-term rentals similar to bed and breakfast inns and require that same conditional use permit and would not allow single-family zoning and would continue to require zoning change for all short-term rentals and single-family zoning. Option three also separates between owner-occupied and investor-owned. It would allow owner-occupied short-term rentals by conditional use permit in all residential districts up to 5 to 10% of a block or multifamily building. So on your street, maximum 5 to 10% of houses could be owner-occupied short-term rentals. It would allow investor-owned short-term rentals by conditional use up to 5 to 10% of the block, but only in multifamily districts, and would continue to require zoning change for all others. Option four would be to allow owner-occupied short-term rentals by right in certain neighborhoods or citywide up to 5 to 10% of block or multifamily building and fewer than 30 booking nights per year require a, and require conditional use permit or zoning change for all others. We'll put the link to this page in the description because that was a, a lot to read. But basically, option one is no change. Option two is separating owner-occupied and investor-owned, but still only in two-family and multifamily zoning. Option three would allow it in all residential districts up to 5 to 10% of each block and investor-owned in multifamily districts. And then option four is a similar one, owner-occupied short-term rentals, 5 to 10% of blocks, but fewer than 30 booking nights per year. That's low. That's but, really low. Yeah, but... um. What are your thoughts? We 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 ramp Jessica in, and then we can dissect and talk about all this. Yeah, I think so. Awesome. So we're going to introduce you to Jessica Black. Jessica is an Arlington resident and a current stay-at-home parent, and an attorney by education. She is the co-founder of a grassroots group of residents from cities across Texas called the Texas Neighborhood Coalition that is working to protect local control of land use zoning and short-term rental regulations and helps residents and cities across the state to understand the Texas case law surrounding short-term rentals and the regulations best practices for short-term rentals. We are thrilled to have her on the podcast as this is an important time for Fort Worth as public discussion starts to ramp up about how should we handle Airbnb and Verbos as we build out the city. So here's Jessica. My name is Jessica Black. I'm actually in Arlington, but I grew up going to St. Rita's and my mom taught at Nolan High School. Both my daughters were born in Fort Worth, so I definitely have ties and affinity to Fort Worth. We have family there too, but I am the co-founder of a group called the Texas Neighborhood Coalition and it's a completely grassroots group of residents across Texas who have all kind of with issues with short-term rentals in their community. And we joined together probably back in 2018 to fight off a couple attempts in the Texas legislature to preempt city's ability to zone and regulate short-term rentals. So we have some folks in Fort Worth that we have worked with for years 
And when this issue started bubbling up again in Fort Worth, they asked us to help them and we said we'd be happy to. Awesome. Uh, how did you originally get involved with this? Like what, dri what drives your passion behind it? I am what I call an accidental activist. I don't think anybody, you know, who's a neighbor plans to get involved in this issue, but my husband and I are out here in Arlington. My parents are here. His mom is here. So we had moved back to be close to family. We searched for two years to find, you know, the perfect house that where we liked the schools, it was safe, it was stable, um, close to his mom, close to my mom, but not necessarily on either of their way to anywhere so that we don't get to drop by. And then we started having short-term rentals pop up and, you know, it was, it was disconcerting because I have young kids and we had, like I said, moved into this neighborhood for safety, for stability, for community. And it was really contrary to that. My husband travels a lot for work. So the girls and I are here by myself and, and having neighbors that we know and trust was really important to us. So I got involved when Arlington was going through the ordinance process. And then as soon as we crossed the finish line with that in 2019, there was a bill down in the Texas legislature that would have undone all that. So like I said, we got together with the folks from the other cities and went down to the Texas legislature to, to meet with state reps and attend hearings and, and make sure that cities were able to control this at the local level. Yeah. Ar Arlington acted on this a lot earlier than Fort Worth obviously has. And in general, I would say Arlington is probably the most transient area in North Texas, just because it's got six flags and the Ranger stadium and uh, Cowboy stadium. Like there, there is obviously a lot of people coming in and out. So what did that original um, ordinance process look like for you? Um, and, what is Arlington's uh, ordinance around short-term rentals? Actually, I think Fort Worth beat us to the punch by one year because it was 2018 when they did the clarification that, that short-term rentals were included in their uh, existing yes. ordinances. Yeah. But, but as far as the Arlington process, kind of similar to Fort Worth, we had had an ordinance that had been on the books for decades that said rentals less than 30 days were not allowed in residential neighborhoods, but the short-term rentals were operating there anyway. And it was causing the exact same friction that you're seeing in Fort Worth, that you're seeing in Dallas, that you're seeing in cities really all over the country. Um, and so what the city did was through a lot of public debate, you know, they hired a third party company similar to what Fort Worth is doing to figure out where the short-term rentals were and, and help with that public input process they created an, an overlay zone basically around our entertainment district. That is the only place in the city where you can do a short-term rental in a single family zoned neighborhood, but you can do them anywhere in the city in areas that are commercially zoned, that are mixed use, that are um, RM12, which is like duplex or multifamily. So I think, and this might not be current, but like when we were going through the process, there were over 11,000 properties in the city that were eligible for short-term rental permits. So I always laugh when people say Arlington has banned them because I'm like, 11,000 is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a lot of places you could do them. Yeah. And uh, how have you seen this process for Fort Worth uh, been different than it was for Arlington or the same? Have you seen Fort Worth like been able to flush out any 
of the maybe like humps in the road that Arlington had, or has it been a similar process? The, what I what I see from from working on this issue for three years is that Fort Worth basically has half of what a typical short-term rental regulation package is. They have the zoning piece, but they don't have the regulations and the registration and the enforcement piece, which is part of the challenge. Why, why code has such a hard time going after the people that are operating illegally, because there's, there's no mechanism there to really enforce it other than ones that are really kind of clunky and burdensome and not really cost efficient. Yeah. So is your view that, like similar to Arlington, Fort Worth needs to create structure around it or that they should like continue to be outlawed or out of ordinance completely? Well, the structure definitely helps. Like for instance, here in Arlington, advertising a short-term rental is a violation of the ordinance. Advertising a short-term rental without a permit okay. is a violation. So a code officer doesn't have to go out in the field and prove that they're doing it you know, stake them out and look at the license plates and how many people are coming and going and how long they're staying there. The code officer just has to go online and they can already get a lot of this data from those third-party companies that scrape the platforms and will show you who's listed, match it up with your permit numbers. Got it. And if they can show that there's a property that's advertising, you can rent it for, you know, less than 30 days and they don't have a permit, then that is enough evidence to issue a citation. So you can have somebody sitting in an office doing that all afternoon, which yeah. makes it a whole lot easier. I actually have gone and sat through some of the municipal court hearings in Arlington just to kind of watch the process play out, which is pretty fascinating. I don't, I'm going to date myself, but I don't know if you've ever watched that old TV show from the eighties night court. Mm. Uh, municipal court is a lot like night court. <laughs> <laughs> um, so are you saying that Fort Worth kind of gives a small town approach to it? Like we're not like we don't act like a big city around um, regulating this stuff, like compared to Atlanta or a larger city? Or is, is like when you compare it to Arlington, did Arlington seem like they were treated this situation more as a um, like a big city because they had the capacity to have both sides of, of that coin? I wouldn't say I mean, I just think that. So I'm a, I'm a stay-at-home mom right now, but I'm an attorney by education. Okay. And, you know, I, there was a class I took in law school that talked about kind of like evolving areas of the law. Yeah. And I don't think it's that it's a small town approach. I just think that this is a new thing that cities are grappling with, trying to Got figure it. out the best practices and how to regulate it. And that what Fort Worth did in 2018 is incomplete, that it was, like I said, missing mm. that kind of enforcement and regulation half. Yeah. So, you can always go back and put that in. And, you know, there, I mean, there's other cities everywhere that are still grappling with it. You mentioned Atlanta. They passed an ordinance over a year ago now. They've postponed enforcement three times. The local short-term rental group is threatening to sue the moment they dare try to enforce it. So, you know, mm. they're having their struggles. Um, you know, there's cities all across Texas that are having struggles. The, the one city that I always point to is kind of one of the best practices around the country is Denver. I think Denver has a great ordinance. They, um, they have what's called platform accountability, which means in addition to regulating the short-term rental operators, they regulate the platforms too, the Airbnbs, the mm. Burbos, and they can fine Airbnb $1,000 a day for collecting fees from listings that don't have permits with the city. And what that does is kind of forces 
the platforms to play by the rules because without that there's this perverse disincentive for the platforms to kind of blow the cities off yeah mm-hmm. they make more money as long as those illegal strs are operating right if you can find them a thousand dollars a day for not playing by the rules suddenly they'll clean up their act denver actually has not had to find airbnb or verbo because like i said they once they realize the city has the capacity to do that, they're like, okay, we're going to get the illegal listings off our platform and we're going to do what we're supposed to do. Mm. They have a, like a compliance rate that's over 90%, which is one of the highest in the country. Wow. What is a, what is your take on what Fort Worth citizens should be thinking through? I think a lot of people may not know um, all the possible ramifications of STRs, you know, there's positives clearly for tourism, but what residents should be aware about um, that you're thinking through um, as you advocate um, for better regulation? Well, one thing that I really believe in is in local control and that Texas is a really big state and every city is different. There's not a one size fits all solution. I, you know, I wouldn't want to have to have the same short term rental rules in Arlington as they do in Galveston because we're completely different. Yeah. Um, But there are a lot of unintended consequences to think about with short-term rentals, you know, and that's everything from the impact on housing. There are studies that show that they can impact crime rate, and it's not that the short-term rental guests are coming in and committing the crime. It's that um, as you have long-term neighbors that are replaced by kind of homes that have a constant churn of, of strangers, it breaks down that community fabric. I mean, how do you have a crime watch group when the whole the whole concept of a crime watch group is you get to know your neighbors, their cars, their routines. Everybody looks out for something that's out of the ordinary with a short term rental. The entire business model is bringing a constant flow of strangers into the neighborhood. So is that person lost looking for their Airbnb or are they driving around slow case in the neighborhood looking for a house to break into? I don't know. There's a there's a guy I know in Nashville who had a short term rental across the street, was driving out of his air his driveway and saw some people, you know, messing with the door lock. He waves, they wave back. He didn't think anything of it. He thought it was some runners just having a hard time with the door. And then he comes back a couple hours later and the cops are there and it was people breaking into the house, but he had no way to know because why would he think anything of, you know, people that he doesn't know trying to get into that house. Yeah. We've had some issues here in Arlington this past winter where, Um, there were some homeless drug addicts that had figured out which houses were short-term rentals in the entertainment district. And we can go online and look at the calendars and see when those houses are going to be vacant. And then you break in and you use it as a drug den. They were doing their laundry there while they were, you know, getting high. I mean, you know, there's, there's stuff like that. Um, And then there's the impact of, and this is really what issue was, was, the impact on surrounding neighbors, because you have people that have bought homes in reliance on the fact that they were in residentially zoned neighborhoods because they wanted community, they wanted stability, they wanted to know their neighbors and be able to ride their kids or, you know, raise their kids, have their kids go ride bikes, walk dogs, whatever it might be. And when they started popping up in my neighborhood, one of the first things I did was went online to Airbnb's terms of service to see like, okay, what kind of vetting are they doing on these people? And the fine print will say that they can't guarantee that the users are who they claim to be. They can't guarantee they verified an ID. They can't ver- guarantee they run a background, that users don't have a criminal record or they're not on a sex offender registry. So I'm like, okay, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so then I went and looked at the Texas sex offender registry laws 
And if somebody is traveling or in a secondary location, they don't have to notify law enforcement or neighbors unless they go to the same town three times in a one month period for 48 hours or longer per stay, which means that you could stay at an Airbnb for a week as a sex offender and you're not going to trigger that law. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying everybody that stays at an Airbnb is a sex offender, but I'm just saying that there's these public safety laws and all of a sudden we're creating loopholes around them mm-hmm. because of the way that this business model operates. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know if you've seen that the Fort Worth City Council has like presented their four options in maybe like the last day they got published by the Star Telegram. Um, and so I was wondering if what your thoughts on those four options are, uh, if you've seen them or if not, I can read them off. Sure. I, yeah, I have. I know the option one is basically maintaining the status quo, but putting that enforcement piece in place, which, yeah. you know, I know that's what a lot of the neighbors that I've spoken to prefer. And it makes, to me, it makes sense to kind of put the, before you bite off more and potentially make the problem bigger, maybe make sure that you've got structure around it and that you can enforce it. Um, some of the others, like if, if you do go with an owner occupied model, there are some considerations to think about there. There are cities that do that, but a lot of them have run into enforcement challenges like Austin and Nashville. Um, what they see is a lot of fraud because the, the investors will, Oh, I live there. You know, wink, wink. Um, in, in Texas, well, Austin does it by homestead exemption, but the problem in Texas is that homestead exemptions are done at the County level and the counties don't talk to each other. Mm. There's no master database of, you know, who has a homestead exemption in what county. So Austin has seen a lot of homestead exemption fraud in order to get those owner-occupied STR permits. Um, we saw some of that too in Arlington, you know, before we passed our ordinance, people, I mean, just not wanting to pay the property taxes, on, you know, the full share of property taxes on those. So that's something to think about. And the other thing that can happen with, if you do allow the owner-occupied, or at least to think about, is a lot of cities now are starting to look at ways to increase density density um, or missing middle housing whether that's allowing adus or allowing duplexes on lots that once were a single family Um, we're going through that right now in arlington and one of the caveats on the arlington proposals is that any of those would not be eligible to be short-term rentals because of if the whole reason doing that is because you don't have enough housing it kind of defeats the purpose if you're creating these new housing units and they're immediately being converted to lodging mm. rather than housing. It's yeah. not solving the problem. Um, the other option that Fort Worth had up was one that's similar to what San Antonio has. San Antonio um, has an ordinance that was drafted in large part by Verbo and lobbied for very heavily by Verbo where there are um the investor owned are allowed in residential neighborhoods, but there's some density caps on them. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be 12.5% of a block base. So basically one in every eight homes on each side of the street could be an investor owned short-term rental. The problem that San Antonio is having is they only have a 65% compliance rate. So there's about 3000 that are registered with the city, but about 5,300 that are active and operating. And then I've talked to neighbors that live down there and they say that if you call the police with a noise complaint, you know, on a weekend night, if the, if the cops come out at all, because they triage calls and noise complaints and nuisance complaints are not high priority calls, um, that don't even want to bother with filling out a report. So yeah. 
you know, those, those three strikes rules sound great in theory, but good luck getting the three strikes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think the, my issue with option one and like the current ordinance is that if we're calling for better enforcement, so I guess like total enforcement in that case, um, like we're asking the city to invest a bunch of money to like, we have to further fund code compliance or planning and development, whoever's going to be in charge of enforcing it um, and invest in them in something that like isn't beneficial to the city in terms of like revenue, if that makes sense. Like we're kind of just, uh, throwing money at a problem without necessarily any structure behind like how to actually enforce it. Um, I do think the, well, I would touch on that. So, you know, there, there are some studies that show that only like two to 4% of travelers say they would not have made their trip if staying in a short-term rental was not an option. So I sometimes question the amount of revenue that, um, STR operators claim they're bringing to the city. Cause I don't know if it's new revenue, it's maybe just, Tra- you know, it's being transferred from another place mm. and then they don't account for the, the revenue or the impact to the economy that the living in that home would have. And then you also have the issue of the, the hot tax that is collected from short term rentals under state law can only be used to promote tourism. So you can use it for a convention center. You can use it for your visitors bureau, um, but you can't use it for the enforcement. So there was a woman in Dallas, like a MBA data analyst. She did a, a study or an audit out there, a, a random sample of 41 short-term rentals because they used to have a GIS map where you could click on it and it would tell you how much hot tax that STR had paid um, and what 311 and 911 calls were associated with that property. So she parsed the data, got stats on, you know, what's the average cost of responding to a noise complaint, a trash complaint, whatever it might be. The city of Dallas over a seven month period on a random sample of 41 short term rentals spent $540,000 responding to 311 and 911 service calls at at those 41 short term rentals. They paid $20,000 in hot tax. Mm -hmm. So if if you think about having thousands of short term rentals across the city that the city has to police and monitor um, and respond to the, the nuisance complaints you're going to pour a lot of money in. So zoning is a proactive solution. If, if you kind of prevent those nuisances to begin with, you don't have to spend that money. Yeah. I, I, what I, what is your kind of, you know, take around the corporation? Like to me as a homeowner, I feel like I'm an Airbnb user. I'm going to Houston next weekend and staying in an Airbnb uh, is how much corporations are using this to buy up houses, right? One of every three, I think the data, some of your, some people share is one of every three people own 25 or more. Um, you're seeing where like one of every three home is purchased by JP Morgan, BlackRock or some big, uh, investor. It seems like Fort Worth was trying to do things around making the difference between corporate short-term rental owners and, um, people who are actually um, maybe own a few. Do you know any difference of that? Like, when does that like turn you into a corporate and like, 
do you do you look at both versions of Airbnb hosts as, hey, um, we need to regulate the same? What is kind of you guys' take there on how you did that in Arlington and how you would like to see other cities do it? Well, in, in Arlington, we didn't differentiate. Between, typically, the line that you see drawn is owner-occupied or non-owner-occupied. Mm-hmm. Because when you're talking about the non-owner-occupied, it might be somebody that owns one, but they have it titled to an LLC. Mm-hmm. It, you know, so there's, and you can't, without getting super legal on you, but there are some, like, I think Atlanta is going to run into some legal issues by saying that people outside the city can't have them or you can only, you know, so you can draw a bright line between owner occupied and investor owned, but it gets a whole lot messier if you try to say, Oh, you can have two, but you can't have three or you can do it as an individual, but you can't do it as an LLC. Um, Cause you know, corporations are people. <laughs> so you have that problem, but so I have, there's a website called Inside Airbnb that did scrape the Airbnb data for Fort Worth. Airbnb is typically about 80% of a market in, in most of the markets that you see. They found that there are about a little over 1,700 short-term rentals in Fort Worth. 76.5% of them were in homes or apartments. And 56.2% of hosts with listings in Fort Worth had more than one. So that really does point to kind of the commercial nature of this. Oh, the other thing that he had pulled from that data was that only 33% of the hosts with listings in Fort Worth self-identify as living in Fort Worth. Mm -hmm. So Airbnb may have started out, you know, their original concept was you rent out your, your spare room for some extra cash, but it has become something quite different. And those, you know, local hosts that are actually living in the home and running out of spare room are now the minority and the institutional side is growing. That's where most of the growth, most of the revenue is coming from. There's another website called AirDNA. And according to their data, there are only 250 listings in Fort Worth that are shared or private rooms in someone's home. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's great. I mean, that's, I mean, not great, but that's good insight on, on the situation. Um, so what is your like take on like how does because I'm also now seeing like I, I, at least in the um, Twitter sphere, I'm seeing uh, like a group of people who are like, I'm converting back to hotels like I'm like I found out that they don't clean their comforter until like every 90 days. I'm finding out that these cleaning fees, then I got to like clean the house. So it's also just kind of also from a user experience actually not becoming that enjoyable Um so I don't know if, if you've kind of seen any like people kind of. I, like- I have seen that. You know, so the funny thing is I actually grew up around the short term rental industry. My parents had a vacation rental in the Florida Panhandle for 25 years. And so I've had the they got out long before. Well, right as Airbnb was kind of becoming a thing. So I've had the opportunity to see how Airbnb has changed the vacation rental industry. And in, in many ways, I think for the worst, Um You know, when my parents did it, there was a local property management company. They did the rentals for a week. You showed up at the office. Somebody matched your your credit card and your ID to make sure that you were the person that rented it. You put down a deposit. They stopped by right after you checked in to make sure that nothing, you know, shady or weird was going on and would kind of keep tabs on things. And Airbnb, one, their CEO brags that he has made it easy for anyone to post. And, you know, to that, I would say, does everybody really need to host? You know, does it need to be easy or do you need to have some standards around it? Um, Because 
yeah, it, it's kind of, there's a lot of people that run Airbnbs and then show up and they're like, I got catfished. Um, this is not what I thought I was getting based on the pictures. And then there's, you know, the cancellation policies are very different than hotels um, in terms of refunds or, you know, you have a host back out on you the the week before your vacation and then you go around to look for something else to book and everything is three times the price of when you booked a couple months ago and Airbnb is like, oh, here's a coupon for $200. Good luck. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you said it too, that like Airbnb has also changed. Like it's not, uh, you know, like what 250 out of however many Fort Worth short-term rentals that are like private room shared space. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, cleaning fees. And the thing is like Airbnb doesn't take any percentage of cleaning fees. So owners have an incentive to undercharge their like nightly fees and overcharge their cleaning fees and then ask you to do all the cleaning anyways. <laughs> um, but well, it, and- like their experience has radically changed from that original concept too. I mean, Airbnb has a choice. They don't have to do it that way. Right, in fact, right. over in Europe, they're not allowed to do it that way. So they have to show the all-inclusive cost up front. They could do that here, but they choose not to for, you know, whatever reason. Yeah, it seems like the reason is you can look at the price. Like it's like, all right, two fifty for an Airbnb or two fifty fifty for a hotel. So it looks like, oh, you get a house for a hotel room. But then now there's a $200 cleaning fees and then now once you see it you, you thought this was a good return because you get a, a house rather than a room um so i i think that's probably where the price like my guess of the pricing structure comes in like you got to compete with a hotel room but then you get snapped away once you see the, all the additional costs <laughs> what i would I, I think you know i i what's funny our podcast has talked about short-term rentals for a long time and um we're you know we're both you know, early millennials who were like, oh yeah, Airbnb makes a lot of sense. Like we love it. We love it. But you know, we also live in Meadowbrook and the Meadowbrook Home Association is a big advocate of like, you know, standing up and thinking through this. And a lot of the emails or a lot of the conversations, you know, I feel like I've learned a lot and, and feel like my, I, I, I see the, the seesaw of like being a consumer of Airbnb, but then also seeing like being a house owner in, in, in a place like Meadowbrook and feeling like, man, this is very difficult uh, to decide. So like, I want, I, I would love to know like your take on like, is there any data around like the difference in crime compared to like what happens in a hotel room? Like, are you safer in a hotel room than if you stayed in an Airbnb or like, I feel like that could be a big play to like, also if we could look at like, what are the police calls at a hotel compared to like uh, an Airbnb? I feel like that would be a good narrative for a lot of uh, people to see a compare and contrast. So I was wondering if, is there anything like that comparing Airbnb crime to hotel crime? I haven't seen crime? anything, you know, specifically comparing because it's so hard to get the crime data on Airbnbs yeah. to start with, to, to make that comparison. But you know, there are, this is a complex issue mm-hmm. and that's why there isn't a one size fits all solution. Um, you know, there, there have been multiple cities like Austin, Waco, College Station, I'm leaving Fredericksburg in Texas oh, yeah. that initially said, okay, we're going to, we're going to issue permits for these investor owned short-term rentals in residential neighborhoods. And 
it quickly got out of hand. If you go on the social media groups for the Airbnb hosts, they'll, they'll ask each other, you know, what's a good city to invest in? What's a city that has SDR industry friendly regulations? So if, if, if a city rolls out the red carpet for, for short-term rentals with industry friendly regulations, the investors will swoop in. And so those other Texas cities I mentioned got overrun and then all had to go back and say, you know, this isn't working out the way we thought it would. Um, in, in Austin, it was impacting school enrollments in the neighborhoods that were seeing heavy concentrations. Um, it was impacting housing. The police just didn't have the resources to go out and respond. And when they did, the STR hosts were actually like leaving scripts for their guests of what to say. Like if code shows up, you know, say these things so that you don't get a citation. So it, it just wasn't working. So, you know, they went and said, okay, we're not going to issue any more permits for, for the residential areas. You can do them in the commercial, you can do them in some of the other, but it, it's not working out here. Um, but yeah, the, as far as the crime studies, like the ones that I have that look at short-term rental specifically looked at, there's one that looked at Boston and it tracked the increase in violent crime um, from year to year as like, they found as the percentage of Airbnb listings in a neighborhood increased, that was predictive of an increase in violent crime in the subsequent year and years after that. There was another study that looked at Denver, New York, and San Francisco, because they all have policies that pretty much restrict it to owner-occupied and found that once those policies went into, into effect, those cities saw on average a 5% reduction in their overall crime rate once those policies went into effect. Mm. So, you know, and I'm big on the data and the facts and you know, the academic studies because there isn't a whole, you know, it's hard to get the data because Airbnb won't tell you how many are in your city mm -hmm. or where they are. And so you cities can't really put together was, was that crime at a short-term rental? I don't know. I, I had asked, well, this is funny. I, I started tracking short-term rental shootings a couple of years ago. It was when we knew that Arlington was going to get sued over its ordinance. And I just was looking for kind of crime and safety related incidents in the news at short-term rentals. Mm -hmm. And I was expecting to find stuff about, you know, maybe drug trafficking or human trafficking or prostitution. But I started seeing all these stories about shootings and I was kind of surprised by that. It wasn't what I was expecting. So as a curiosity, I, I started keeping a list of those. And that's been going on about three years now. I'm up to 253 that have been confirmed and reported in the news. And, you know, I know that they all don't get reported because I've talked to plenty of people that say, oh, I had one in my neighborhood, but it never got reported in the news or, you know, anything like that. So it Airbnb even has a, there was an article in Bloomberg, maybe about a year ago, that talked about how they have a black box team. They spend millions of dollars a year to cover up crime and safety related incidents at their listings. So, you know, it's like nobody knows how bad it is and it's hard to track. Yeah. Um, well, Fort Worth has its four public meetings coming up um, to hear feedback on this. Um, are, is your organization going to be at any of them? Like, do you all have plans to have people show up? Well, so the Texas neighborhood coalition, we're working with, um, United neighborhoods of Fort Worth. Okay. And like I said, I'm big on local control. I, mm. I want the local residents to be able to speak for themselves and say what they want. I'm happy to share data and information with the council members and, you know, best practices, what other cities have tried, what's worked, what hasn't worked. So 
you know, I think the ultimate decision has to come down to the residents that live in the city. Mm-hmm. But like I said, with with information, I don't think it needs yeah. to be done in a vacuum. And I think it needs to be an informed decision because there there can be a lot of unintended consequences. And so residents really need to think through what do they want for the future of their neighborhoods? And what is the value of community and stability and knowing your neighbors versus any potential value that can come from turning housing stock into lodging? Yeah. Because I, because I, do you know how SRT groups are going to come to these kind of things? Like, I feel like that's, they, they're, are they going to come very standardized and they have an approach to make pro SRT laws? Like, what can we expect on that end? So, I mean, I think what you see from city to city is from those kind of groups is, is pretty cookie cutter. And there's a reason for that. And that is because um, Airbnb's lobbyist and VRBO's lobbyist, and then there's a national group called Rent Responsibly that is funded by the STR industry. They work to prop those local grassroots up. They train them, they coach them, they tell them what to say. Um, every once in a while, you can see the script peeking through. So, yeah, I mean, you hear the same arguments from city to city. And I, I think it's because they figured out that it doesn't look as good when Airbnb or Verbo come in. Mm. So they they AstroTurf instead. Yeah. Yeah, it's I, I think the. um it's also interesting how Airbnb spends a lot of money and when something does go bad, how much work they put into hiding that mistake in an Airbnb, paying someone millions of dollars to kind of hush money, if you would. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Have you had any experience of that happening in our in the Metroplex? Well, like I said, just a lot of the shootings that go unreported. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I, I don't know for sure. You know, there's no way to know what they cover up and what they, what they don't. I, I track the news stories. It's funny. There was a big, um, there was a big short-term rental shooting in Orinda, California. It happened Halloween of 2019. Five people were killed at the party um, and it made national news. And at that point, I'd been tracking the shootings at short-term rentals for about six months. And Airbnb was in the news. They're saying, this is rare. This, this is, never happens. And I, I'd been tracking them for six months. And I was like, it's happened 38 times in the past six months. What do you mean it's rare? Yeah. You know, but nobody was tracking that information. It mm-hmm. would, you know, one would happen in this city, one would happen in that city, and nobody had put the big picture together. I, I have noticed now that my count is up to 253 when those things happen, they no longer say they're rare. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember, I think Airbnb tried to, um, like, I guess that the, they're kind of, sa- they were trying to save grace by paying for the, sim- like the, the ceremonies and the funerals of these people. Mm-hmm. And even when I guess the families did say, here's a $30,000 bill, they never really got a response or like when it was in the spotlight, it, they kind of acted as if they were going to do all these things. But then once the bill came, they really made all these loops for the families to jump for the support. Um, I think think there was a story around that as well on, on that. Um, I think Airbnb, you know, unfortunately, like I said, having grown up around this industry and seen the changes with Airbnb, Airbnb itself is one of the biggest problems because yeah. they, you know, just don't take a lot of responsibility or accountability for the impacts that they're having. 
you know, they they don't require verified ID from all their users. Mm-hmm. And there was an article a couple of years ago that their safety team had asked them to do that, but they yeah. were afraid that people wouldn't use the platform mm. if they required verified ID. And when yeah, um, and then when they made their cuts, I think they cut it all their Portland people, right? And like their Portland people were like experience a lot of these cuts Airbnb made when they cut a thirty percent of their staff was like all the safety team people mm-hmm. who like dealt with all this trauma of like hearing these cases and managing these cases for these people to then get iced. Um, so yeah, I definitely. I, I, we'll put those articles. I'll find those articles and put them in the description oh, yeah. I mean, of the pod. It, you know, there's so much they could do on their end, you know, or even mm-hmm. they're, they're great at these big press releases and pushing them out and getting them all over the media. But the follow through is never been there. Like after that, Orinda shooting the, the same day the Orinda shooting happened, an article dropped in vice talking about all this fraud that was going on on short term rentals. Mm-hmm. And so they, they said, okay, we're, this is the deal. We're going to verify all of our listings by December of 2020. And yet you still see mm-hmm. story after story after story about that fraud going on. So like they never really did it yeah. or the, the party ban that's supposedly permanent now you know, that's been in effect for the past two years, but it doesn't prevent the parties. And, you know, you kick a user off after the fact, but there's not a lot of safeguards in place to keep somebody from going and setting up a new account with a different email and a different credit card. And then they're right back in business or the party, the homes that get delisted for having parties. It's usually a temporary suspension, especially if the media is you know snooping around and then everything blows over and a couple of weeks later they're right back at it. Yeah. It seems like it seems like the best use case for Airbnb would be like looking at big cities and then tracking 90 minutes to 3 hours away and like like what they did in like Broken Bow, Oklahoma. Like I feel like I don't know how people feel about like the Broken Bow people. There was probably five of them there before Airbnb showed up. But then like all these cabins showed up and now there's like a liquor store. There's like all these like little things in there. It seems like if 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 Airbnb wants to make a healthy pivot, maybe it's like really honing into something like that. What is your take on like that or if, or if that even's bad? No, I mean, like I said, my belief is that it's, it's all going to be really unique on a city by city basis, because the impacts are going to be different. You know, is your city in the middle of a housing crisis or does your, is your city trying to stimulate the economy? Um, Or, you know, do do you have a pretty diverse economy where tourism is only a part of it? Or do you have an economy where tourism is basically your bread and butter? But, you know, even in cities where you have tourism as your bread and butter, like Port Aransas is a great example. They're getting killed right now because, the number of short-term rentals keeps increasing. And I don't know, you know, if you've been to Port A, but there's one bridge and there's a ferry. Those yeah. are the two ways to get to the <laughs> island. So the people that were living on the island and, you know, working at all the restaurants and the tourism attractions can't afford to live there anymore. They're getting priced out. So they're getting forced back to the mainland. You know, you're not going to take the ferry or drive the bridge to get paid what you could get paid on the mainland. So a lot of the local businesses are struggling for employees. Their infrastructure is struggling because the trash trucks come from the mainland. Mm. So you have more trash than ever before because of all the short-term rentals. You know, when you go to a short rental, go buy a week's worth of groceries, you throw out whatever you didn't use at the end of the week. I mean, there's just more trash. 
and the the trash trucks are stuck in the traffic on the bridge coming over from the mainland and having to make more trips back and forth because of the increased volume. So they're having issues with that. There, there's just, like I said, a lot of unintended consequences that, that can happen. And a lot of it's just because it's grown so big, so fast mm. and kind of in a vacuum where there haven't been a lot of regulations around it. Yeah. I think if I went in and like pitched like Airbnb regulation as a citizen at one of these events, 25th, 26th, August, whatever that date is, I feel like there's also the, the, the equity play, like, right. Like this idea of like gentrification. Right. But then also if you have room in your house to Airbnb, you're, you, you're like black and brown households usually have a multi-generational living right like grandma brother cousin somebody is always living there so even the opportunity of like creating that wealth creation is a very kind of like privileged opportunity you know i think like in meadowbrook like 5.2 is like the average occupant in the house so it also shows just like all of these people uh and and I, i feel like cities like fort worth who we said in our last podcast was really being trying to be intentional on equity and like protecting black and brown families and, and their wealth creation. I feel like that's also an angle that I feel maybe um, activist groups, they really ride on the safety piece of your, of your neighborhood. Cause I understand how that could get neighborhoods excited, but in very big cities, I feel like there's a play on that equity piece and how, you know, the different income you make, if you're a black house uh, host, if you did, if, if you somehow had the chance of having space in your room, in your house anyways, I think there's a lot of data there. I feel like could also be the play. And I'm only pitching ideas because I know you're like the campaign person. So I was like thinking of (laughs) ways to like help, like really justify these cases. I think in Fort Worth, like if I was going to also jump in a new angle of not just safety, but also like equity is a big, I think a big thing I I would hit with a lot of the city council members. No, I've seen equity issues play out around this in other cities. So Waco is one of the cities that initially allowed the investor owned short term rentals in residential neighborhoods. And they had a CUP process for it. So what was happening in Waco was the wealthier neighborhoods that didn't want them, you know, that rather than showing the residents showing up to the, the planning and zoning hearings, they would go and hire an attorney to, to show up and represent the neighborhoods and say, we don't want this here. And those applications were getting turned down. Meanwhile, there was another neighborhood right kind of near the new uh, Baylor Stadium on the river that was a lower income minority neighborhood. And, you know, they were not very expensive houses. So they made great potential investments. They were close to the stadium. So they made great game day houses and investors were coming in and trying to pick those houses off and turn them into short-term rentals because you can rent it out for the weekend and walk Mm -hmm. to the stadium. And those applications were getting approved because those residents didn't have the money to go hire an attorney to show up at the planning and zoning hearings and, and protest for them. You know, they were lucky if they were able to take time off work Mm. to go to the hearing in person and protest on their own. So it was having a disparate impact on those lower income neighborhoods because they just didn't have the same means to fight. And that was something I was afraid of here in Arlington too, because if Arlington had not done what it did, um, my neighborhood's plan B was to basically figure out how we could form a, a, basically a one rule HOA. And, you know, I'm, I'm blessed enough to live in a neighborhood where most of the neighbors would have the means to do that. But what happens to the neighborhoods that don't have the means to do that? And then they become the targets. Yeah, well, 
all good things to consider. Um, you have any other last questions or any last thoughts you would want to share with um, Fort Worthians as we get ready to learn more about SRTs uh, and how the city is going to respond? No, I just encourage everybody to really dig in. I mean, this, this is a complex issue. There's lots of zoning language. There's lots of stuff that when you first look at it, it kind of makes your, your head hurt and your eyes glaze over. But it can have such a huge impact on the future of your neighborhood, on the future of your city, on the housing market, on your quality of life, that it, it's really important to be thoughtful about it and, and think about what you want the future of your neighborhoods and your city to look like. Yeah, I think that's a great note to end on. Um, again, thanks a ton for your time and in coming on to have this conversation with us. Um, I think it's obviously probably like the most name brand issue that I think this uh, city council has faced this year uh, since redistricting. And so um, it'll be interesting to see how these public comment hearings play out and what's next for it well thank you guys for having me again thanks a lot to jessica for coming on um i think she had a lot of really good insights i appreciate her um emphasis on it not being a one-size-fits-all like local cities doing what is best for them um and you know not being fully anti short-term rental but how do we make this good for everybody and i loved all her story case studies from fredericksburg to waco what they were doing in arlington her depth of knowledge in atlanta definitely um full of experience and knowledge um and then that lawyer background is just, it, it was so awesome. I didn't realize how much, um, I guess, almost just there's needed to know about, um, depending on how Fort Worth decides to approach SRTs, what could happen. I mean, the Port Aransas story, all of it was just super exciting. I felt like just enjoying it, just feeling, hearing her talk about all the things. What did you learn or maybe a perspective that, triggered you to maybe think maybe different than you did before the interview or maybe really double down on something you feel passionate about in this space? I definitely think, and I, I think that this is reinforced by a lot of what she says. Airbnb is a major company in a purely capitalist environment. Yep. Airbnb is designed to make money for Airbnb and to protect Airbnb at all costs. Airbnb does not like care about you past the extent of how you can help make them money. So why are full costs disclosed in other countries and not in the U.S. where you have this exorbitant cleaning fee that, you know, can purely get passed on to the owner because we live in a more purely capitalist structure that wants to make that, that wants to incentivize investors to invest in Airbnb and therefore make them more money. Um, and so 
I think that there's a lot that goes into separating our short-term rentals good for the city and how do we function or control Airbnb to the extent that it can be controlled because their goal is obviously to be as removed from situations as possible. Yeah. No, it, 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 to me as an Airbnb fan, like someone who was, who I'm like, you know, I bought money when it went public, you know, kind of person. Like I'm like, yeah, I believe in this thing, but so much of the maturity now it's, I just don't know how they actually become a sustainable way. I mean, Uber, I remember Uber having, having this issue and, and they still do or they're going through a lot right now. Have you seen all the cases mm-hmm. and all the hidden stuff that they went through to like, it's actually really crazy. Uh, but they somehow are now, I mean, they're still fighting for, to become a real business. Like yeah. they're still not actually any further than they were seven years ago, eight years ago. So it's, it almost just seems the same thing for Airbnb from a financial business. It doesn't seem. Well, and I think somebody could come and disrupt the industry where they, like she said, her family had experience in short-term rentals run by these local companies, and those are all over the place when you go to tourists, uh, heavy tourism-heavy cities, right? Like, you have this small property management company, and I, I think that's what could disrupt the industry a little bit more is a company that actually wanted to invest in the local infrastructure rather than playing more of like wild west we're just going to set up a platform that people that allows people to advertise their homes the bookshop of like of of airbnb almost in a way yeah like we need like those local companies exist Um, especially in your tourism heavy cities where you, you know, maybe stop by an office and pick up a key. Like I know the one time we went to Port Aransas, like we did that. Like you, you had your, uh, office that you went to, you picked up a key. They gave you the instructions for everything. Um, so that you have that local point of contact and that local, investment in infrastructure and it could be dope i mean imagine coming off of an airport and then you have like an airbnb kiosk that kind of sits there for you yeah. to like get it it's almost like rental cars or like you know it's maybe it's in the rental car area and now there's a bright pink airbnb or like whatever the competitor does yeah and it's like the liaison of the transaction maybe that's where you get your keys or you get your code whatever the thing is yeah um you know and like create Taking a base some of it yeah you take a lot of the onus off of the owners to be constantly communicating these things. You eliminate some of the uh, like fishing aspects yep. of it. Um, and I think that's what something like Airbnb's next iteration needs to be because they're losing They're They're continuing to, I see the phrase Airbnb is dead going around a lot yep. more because they're 100%. losing because of these things. And, uh, but yeah, going to like the bookshop analogy, right? Right. Amazon, people are like, oh, we want to buy books, but not off of Amazon. Bookshop, you buy, it comes from a local. Mm-hmm. Like, if you can create that kind of similar behavior for us millennials who yeah. want to be conscious of how we travel or buy books, I could see, I for sure could see that 
um, working. And, and, and to me, I feel like a lot of the behaviors that would need to happen is maybe it's more of like Airbnbs can't be rented until, because I, when I go back to the Michael Crane story, it's like, I agree. If you're in Fort Worth for two weeks, you don't want to be in a hotel room. Yeah. You know, like, so could there be like no such thing as one day Airbnbs, mm, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, or, I mean, two days would really hurt their business because of weekends, because you got Friday night, Saturday night. But I don't know. I just think um, I see the potential of Airbnbs as someone who uses Airbnbs a lot as I travel um, because, like, it's so much better than a hotel. Mm-hmm. But, man, this is this is uh, this is going to be interesting because you're also my right. The bet we talked about earlier in the podcast uh, when we talked about this is Airbnb will get into hotels where mm-hmm. Airbnb where Hotel Drice is on Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're booking there have these many hotels um, cause that might be the other pivot. Cause they realize it's, you know, rather than getting the backlash of Fredericksburg and Waco happening all over the country. Yeah. You, uh, ready to move into wins and losses. Let's make it happen. I'll start with my loss. And that is that the Catholic, a Catholic Bishop fired the African American head of the Fort Worth local Catholic charities chapter saying that he, quote, misrepresents Catholic teaching and is more strictly aligned with the principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion espoused by postmodern theorists. What? Like, come (laughs) on. You're really saying that because your black head of your Catholic charities chapter is pushing for better diversity, equity, and inclusion that they are not aligned with Catholic charities. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. Uh, yeah. How many How many non-white men popes have there been? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're looking worse than the American presidency, you know? So, um, yeah, really crazy, but then also just shows um, Catholic church has been a dying place. For a while, um, I don't know anyone who, I do not know a member of the Fort Worth Catholic community, me living in Fort Worth. I do. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if there's much else to say. <laughs> but, you know, so I don't know. I, I feel like the non-denominational, the more modernized groups who try their best with equity and inclusion, you know, I feel like even not just race, but gender and all that representation of their people seem to have the winning code to get more uh, growth of, of people. I don't know who has worse. I actually disagree, and so maybe that's why this was yeah. more surprising to me, is that I think the Catholic Church has been, and it, led by the current Pope, has been a little bit more Latino population prog- progressive in this area, and so that might be why it really stuck out to me as like, oh, I, I would not have expected this from yeah the, the catholic church or a catholic organization right now yeah no makes sense uh well let me go into my loss um 
Texas sues after Biden administration issues guidance saying doctors can perform abortions and emergencies. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxson argues that Biden administration is violating the state's sovereign interest by reassuring the nation's doctors that they can perform abortions and a medical emergencies. Uh, people, right? What, what we're basically arguing here is that the federal government is saying, hey, if a, if a woman's life or is on the line, you can do what needs to happen to save the user. And, and now we are saying, no, you know, what percentage really believes like that's a bad idea yeah. in the abortion community? Like, you know, Catholic churches, you know, I'd be interested to know what percentage. I mean, most people in that space are probably against most of it, but that seems pretty okay. Yeah, well, and this comes on the heels of a few cases nationally where women have died while doctors are waiting for lawyers to confirm that they can give life-saving care. Like, how is that the medical system that we need to be living in right now? But it's Ken Paxton, and what more can you expect? (laughs) Well, Uh, let's go to wins and losses. I mean, let's go to wins. My win is that Comptroller Glenn Hegar raised the Texas revenue estimate by nearly $14 billion. One, how do you miss by $14 billion? Like, that's insane. But this means that Texas is bringing in a ton, a ton of revenue. So we're looking at a $27 billion surplus in the state of Texas. And... I'm just looking around thinking what Beto O'Rourke would legislate with that money because I see investment in public school. I see investment in mental health funding. I just see so many things where it's like, Texas, what are we doing with this money? Like, we ha- it, it is a win that we're looking at a $27 billion surplus that Texas is experiencing growth. And now it's like with great power comes great responsibility. What are we going to do with this to actually benefit the lives of the people living in the state of all of us instead of just creating a secession fund? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But but I feel like, I know this is great, but what is your, it seems like this is what Abbott's going to prop his success on. Like, look at how well we manage the state of Texas. And everyone's going to be like, well, let's keep doing this. But I guess you could argue that if I'm like, so me as a Texan and my property taxes keep going up, it's like, right. well, why are you keep forking it all out of me if everything's okay over there? Right. And uh, I think this is also a result of oil prices being what they have been like expensive oil is good for texas so can we get like can texans get like a rebate on all the extra we've been paying in gas you know like i i just think there is a good there's really good messaging done by abbott and his team to decouple those things yep but I think we have to start to put together, like, if we are bringing in all of this revenue, if we're experiencing this growth, how do we invest in the public systems that we need to sustain this growth instead of waiting until the grid fails again to 
not do anything about it again. You know, like it's not a matter of money. We have the money to fix our issues. So let's do it. Yeah. Well, um, my win is really cool. It is uh, about why North Texas and uh, and Fort Worth is a hub for autonomous trucking uh, in a shipping container yard at the Alliance Mobility Innovation Zone. Um, Semi trucks um, are moving around. Their steer their their steering wheel is turning, but people are um, managing it either from an office or it's doing it on its own. So what I think is really cool here is just like how. Um, Employees and 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 groups like Phantom Auto, uh, ITS Con Global, um, are flocking to North Texas um, because of our ability to do major f- freight and logistics uh, and test those things and people to test that technology here. Um, but what's also really cool is just like the 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 Alliance Innovation Zone is just becoming a leader in this space. Um, and like companies are really building out like using us dfw as a hub to build out autonomous transportation uh, a vehicle company called gaddick is starting to use autonomous box trucks to complete div- deliveries to sam's club across dallas fort worth um, the company operates out of alliance and another company aurora innovation inc is collaborating with werner to launch a 600 mile autonomous truck route from fort worth to el paso uh, Alphabet's Waymo recently opened a hub that will operate 20 autonomous trunks in Lancaster and plans to add several driving routes between Fort Worth and Houston. So I just think that's pretty cool um, that this could be started and advocated for right here in the Metroplex. Um, they're doing a lot of this already in China. I actually saw some crazy data around what percentage of trucks are autonomous. And I was like, man, that's crazy. I think that was in like the technology review. But yeah, it's just cool to see now that's also being homegrown here. Yeah, I agree. Well, thanks everyone for listening to our supersized 100th episode. We really appreciate you continuing to tune in. uh, And yeah, we won't see you next week unless you split this in half, but we'll be back the week after. Peace. Follow us like Double Tap. Now they control your life, control your life.